crush manna fell to the ground as a gift from God. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, this is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can taste and smell fresh manna. Today you'll be listening to Pastor Sean Grisendine, pastor of the Houghton Seventh-day Adventist Church and assistant pastor of the Bessemer and Greenland Seventh-day Adventist Churches. Now, here's Pastor Sean. It's a blessing to be here and worship God together, and so thankful for the freedom that we have in Christ. I'd like us to begin our message on our knees, asking God to teach us through His Holy Spirit. So let us pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name. We thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus, into this world to set us free from sin. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross of Christ, that Jesus will be lifted up, that your Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts and minds personally and individually, and that we would come to know your voice and to walk where you lead. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us freedom, not only in this country, but for eternity through you. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of our message this morning is The Declaration of Dependence. According to the Washington Post, in an article entitled, Why July 2 is Really America's Independence Day, a few key facts come forth about history that have many striking parallels as to God's declaration of dependence that he gave to his children of Israel after they came out of Egypt. The article states that it was on July 2, 1776, that the Second Continental Congress meeting in Philadelphia voted to approve a resolution for independence from Britain. On that same day, July 2, the Pennsylvania Evening Post published this. This day, the Continental Congress declared the United Colonies free and independent states. So it's natural for us to ask, why do we celebrate independence on July 4? The answer is that we do so because of a little thing called the Declaration of Independence. The document was adopted by the Continental Congress on July 4th, but it wasn't instantly celebrated. It's now believed that most of the delegates signed it on July 2. In fact, that's when the assistant to the Secretary of Congress, Timothy Matlack, produced a clean copy. The city of Philadelphia, where the declaration was actually signed, waited until July 8 to celebrate with a parade and the firing of guns. And the Continental Army, under the leadership of George Washington, didn't learn about it until July 9. And then, as for the British government in London, from which they declared independence, it didn't even know that the United States had declared this independence until August 30 of 1776. We can't miss the parallel to the Christian life. Jesus has come to this world to set us free, and sometimes it takes a while for us to realize the freedom that he's offered. Truly, Jesus wants us to be set free from the power of sin. I've thought about it many times, that there's often a struggle for us, the sense of, okay, I'm set free in Christ, but now what? The reality is that we, as human beings, we need something to see as an example in order for us to even know what freedom is. Because we live in a society, and we're seeing it happening more and more, that definitions of morality and definitions of freedom are being redefined. Is that true? And as things get redefined, are people necessarily happier? No, they're often more miserable. Because the presence of Christ alone 
can make men and women happy, as it says in the Adventist home, page 28, paragraph 1. I remember when I was a student at Pacific College, I was about 20 at the time, and I was really wrestling with what I was going to be or do in life. I was a business major, but I was quickly falling out of love with the idea of selling people stuff they didn't need for the rest of my life. And I had a little pocket Bible on my lap, and I remember reading Romans while I was in my advertising class. And Romans 3.31 came to me like a bolt of lightning. It just really clarified things. Because I'd had kind of this struggle, like, obedience, is that somehow, like, you know, antithetical to freedom and to being a Christian? And it just put it all together. The pieces began to fit. And truly, when we think about the Declaration of Dependence, it's nothing short of God's law. Go to Romans 3, verse 31. Let's look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 31. Romans chapter 3 and verse 31. And here the Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, begins with a rhetorical question. He says, Do we then make void the law through faith? The answer, God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. I remember contemplating this, and things began to fit together in my mind. Because growing up, I had heard about the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I had even attended the Seventh-day Adventist Church when I would visit my family in Michigan. But I was not a Seventh-day Adventist. And God was beginning to unfold to me that definitional freedom in the law is not antithetical to Christian freedom in Jesus. It's actually, it fits perfectly together. And so as these pieces began to fit together, I got super excited. And my heart was open to what would take place not long after that experience when God would call me to become a pastor in October of 2007. Well, of course, God leads our lives in ways that we know not. But if we look back, we're like, wow, I wouldn't have had it any other way. And it's truly the gospel coming into clarity that sets us free. Because sometimes people think that they're set free to keep sinning. And that's actually bondage. That was my great struggle because I'd grown up in a Christian experience that talked about freedom in Christ and yet struggled with all kinds of sin issues. And then said, well, you're a Christian. Did you say the sinner's prayer? And I'm like, yeah, I've said it many times. It seems to not be working. The reason it wasn't working is I had had a misunderstanding of the power of God's grace. God's grace catapults us into supernatural power through the Holy Spirit to live obedient lives. And so Jesus, when he came to this world, Matthew 5, 17 and 18, here in the Sermon on the Mount, he repeats the same thought. He didn't come to take away the holiness of the law of God or, or do away with these exceedingly high requirements. He says, You've fallen in sin. I'm going to bring you up into my highest places. I'm going to transform your inner being. Make us new people. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass in the law, till all be fulfilled. You know, you think about how when you talk about the law, Many times we read that and we're, we have this idea that that sounds like bondage. But there's actually something so different in Scripture. If you go to James chapter 2 and verse 12, and this actually presents a good thought, is if what the Bible calls the law is true, then anything short of it is actually slavery and truly something that will destroy us. So James chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 12. Here, the law is given a specific name. James 2 and verse 12. It says, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. I don't know that we often think of the law as liberty. Because sometimes we're like, well, that's condemning my sin. Yes, 
But I praise God that there is a standard that shows us our sinfulness so we'll feel our need of a Savior. Isn't that good news? If you didn't feel your need, you'd never come. I mean, if you never had maybe that test, the doctor's like, there's something wrong with your health. You need to get that checked out. I'm reminded of the time that my mom and my sister and I were going to the chiropractor and things weren't just quite right. Said, you better get a CAT scan. Well, that's what revealed that she had cancer. Well, you know, I don't think anyone wants to get the bad news that you have a major health crisis, but wouldn't you rather know what's going on so it can be treated? That's how Jesus is. He's like, wouldn't you rather know there's a problem so I can heal it? That's what God does. And so when we think about the declaration of independence, you know, this country, we talk about freedom. And yet, I'll be very honest with you. Did you know that statistically, Americans are less happy than they've ever been in history? Did you know that? Well, it's because immorality and iniquity are on the rise, and we think that that's freedom. We can do anything we please. That's not freedom. That's bondage. Because it flies in the face of God's moral law. It's actually bringing us into bondage to the enemy of souls, and that's the devil. God wants to deliver us with supernatural grace and power. Now, we realize our need, and we start to feel our sinfulness in light of the, the exceedingly high standards of morality that God has in his word, and revealed in the character of Christ, we cry out for help, and supernatural power is available to us. And so that supernatural power comes to us through the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, this is the power that enables us to live the new life of faith. And there's an interesting phrase that closes these nine divine nature traits, and that's really what we can call them. The fruit of the Spirit is the divine nature. It's the definition of what God's character looks like lived out in your experience when you've surrendered to Christ's sacrifice and experienced his atoning blood. Galatians 5, and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and don't miss this phrase, against such there is no law. When we live by faith on the Son of God, the fruits of the Spirit will be seen in our lives. Not one will be missing. That's from the Desire of Ages, page 676, paragraph 4. But that last phrase that says, against such there is no law, would mean that when you're truly living in harmony with the Holy Spirit's working in your life, you will no longer continue to violate the Ten Commandments. And truly, justly, we could call them, the Ten Commandments, that is, in Christ, the Declaration of Dependence. And that's why I've entitled this message The Declaration of Dependence because rather than setting us free from obedience, we are set free into obedience. Does that make sense? And actually, every time we try to do our own thing, we mess it up big time. We just can't seem to figure out how to really do life. God's like, I defined it right here. This is going to work great. This is how we're going to get our chart, you know, straight for heaven, is look at the standard, look at the principles, and feel your need of saving help from Jesus. And so let's go to that declaration of dependence in Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1 and 2. Here we could see the preamble, so to speak, of this declaration of dependence, because we see who is speaking. We need God to speak to our lives. You know, if there's one great need that we have, it is to learn to come into harmony with the still small voice of God, where we're open to what his word says, his spirit says, his providence to say, and we do not resist his drawing. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. and God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You know, truly, bondage to sin, the world, the flesh, the devil, while the world goes, you know, more and more into its own ways, and we see compromise after compromise, and people becoming more and more unhappy, 
God would have us to be the happiest people on the face of this planet. I believe that. You cannot win people when you're gruff and you're mean and you're cold and you're angry as if that's what Jesus is all about. Jesus went around with joy. In fact, the kind of experience he had in Nazareth, people knew him to be the young man that was a carpenter, but he sang all the time. He would just praise God. He was happy to be in harmony with his father's will. When we know Jesus as it's our privilege to know him, when we get to know his character, we're going to be overflowing with this joy. And the thing is, we're not counterfeiting this. We're not making this up. God supernaturally gives that to us. And so if you haven't been set free from sin, I would understand why there's anger, there's bitterness, there's, you know, those are things Jesus says, give them to me. You know, and we all come broken. Now, I'm not saying that any of us naturally is better or worse than any other. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. As we fall on our knees and we say, Lord, set me free from my Egypt. And whatever it is, whatever your sin struggle is, you can ask Jesus for victory and healing. Then we find in verse 3, this first commandment where he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is a promise that you will not put other gods before him in a world that, while we don't have our you know, idol shrines, so to speak, in America, we do have the American Idol. We do have Facebook. And I'm not saying that these things are necessarily all in all, you know, people may mean well or try to, to use them for good things. But I mean, a lot of the idolatry now is the idolatry of self. It's self-worship. It's focusing on you. How do you feel? What does it make you feel like? And that's how people live their lives. Well, it makes me feel happy. But if you live for your own happiness apart from a holy God, you will eventually perish because true happiness is the result of holiness. And if we lose the holiness of God, which is found in his character, we will inevitably find ourselves miserable and not knowing why self-seeking just doesn't seem to make you happy. It's like a dead-end street every time. No other gods. This is a deliverance from putting anything before God. And I'll just be very honest with you. I believe this is very practical. This is like the first thing you do when you wake up is instead of checking your phone or Facebook or if you have any messages, is you pray. You surrender your life to God. You say, Lord, I really do put you first today. I want you to guide the whole day because I don't know how to manage my life. You do. If God knows you better than you know yourself, who better to guide your life than Jesus? So no other gods is a practical thing. It's a practical day-to-day experience of surrendered trust and abiding in Christ. And then we go to verse 4, 4 through 6, and we get the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So Christ sets us free from making graven images in all of its forms, whether it's the graven images of sports, graven images of the media, graven images of the music industry, entertainment industry. There are so many things that people behold, and the simplified version of nowadays is what you watch is what you'll be. What you feed on is what you'll become. And more recently, the Holy Spirit's been teaching me that what you pray is what you'll become. And I've been learning this. If you want your life to be changed by the Holy Spirit, start praying new realities by the word of God. It'll change you. Because God is the one who wants to recreate us into his image. And so he doesn't want us to keep our eyes on anything seen as our ultimate goal. Rather, he's the unseen God who wants us to grow continually into that image. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. No other images, nothing that we bow down to is more important than God. Which leads us to the third commandment, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. You know, this is a promise that God can set us free from a counterfeit Christianity, a nominal experience where we claim to be Christian, claim to be Seventh-day Adventist Christians living for the coming of Jesus, going to church on the seventh day of the week, which is the Bible Sabbath, and yet not really having that genuine experience. It also is a promise that God can set us free from using God's name casually or flippantly. And we live in a society that is really like, I mean, there's very little reverence in this world. It's a very profane world. Would you agree? It's becoming very profane. And while a person may not necessarily say God when they are swearing, they might use something like gosh or geez. And these are actually derivatives of God's name, and they're still a form of taking his name in vain. We should ask God to cleanse us, cleanse our speech, cleanse our characters from irreverence towards his name, so that even when we speak God's name, we do so with a sense of awe and a realization that he is a holy God. God desires us to truly let him transform us and not receive his grace in vain, leading us to the fourth commandment. Another promise, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. If you search through the Ten Commandments, there's only one commandment that even has the word holy in it, and it's the fourth commandment. And so it is, right there in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But the only way we can keep a day holy is if a holy God makes you holy. You have to experience the gospel to experience the Ten Commandments. It's a declaration of utter dependence on your need of Jesus at every step. And if we don't realize that ongoing, moment by moment, continual need of union and communion with Christ, we're liable to let these Ten Commandments degenerate into formalism. That's not their purpose. Their purpose is to be an ongoing sense of, this is what freedom defined looks like in my Christian experience. It also is, this is what sin defined is, as soon as I step out of Jesus. Because as soon as I step out of an abiding relationship with him, I'm going to feel the condemnation of going my own way. Praise God for that. I'm going to want to come back into Jesus. Isn't that good news? I mean, if you realize how the law and the gospel work in tandem, you know, think about this. Where was the law when Christ was walking this earth? Well, According to Psalm 40, verse 8, it was in his heart. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. So as he lived the law, he was just expressing true character. That's what Jesus wants for us as well. Leading us now to verse 12, the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Do we see a lot of irreverence in this world for parental authority? But it goes further than that. It's not just parental authority irreverence and disrespect for church authority and then disrespect for government authority. And it goes on and on to the point where people who are in absolute rebellion and anarchy will not be reasoned with. God wants us to learn the first lessons of surrender to authority in our homes. But that's oftentimes it's being lost sight of. You know, as families are breaking apart at an alarming rate and we're seeing morality just collapse, we're realizing that These two commandments, the fourth and the fifth, we find right there in the center of the law of God, are the two commandments that echo back from Eden. 
the Sabbath and marriage, because a father and a mother would be so if they're married and they have children. So we find that in a world that is redefining all kinds of relational experiences and saying that it's going to help the society, that's not true. Redefining morality actually makes people more miserable and more confused. People are more confused than ever. God wants us to live the principles of Eden as a mysterious echo of something better that this world doesn't really know exists. It's really becoming more rare. Would you agree? True godliness is becoming rare. So God wants us to live that rare experience through Jesus. Jesus was rare. It's only one of him in the universe. He wants you to be a unique, one-of-a-kind revelation of his character in abiding and obedience in him. Verse 13, thou shalt not kill. You know, the promise here goes beyond just not harming someone or murdering them. It also relates to our very inner thoughts and feelings and what we choose to watch and dwell upon. Because we can actually kill ourselves with worry. Do you know that's a form of death? Because you're not trusting God. And it actually wears out your life forces. You're slowly killing yourself. You know, realizing I can just surrender all these cares to God. I'm going to pray about it instead of worry about it. You know, that's just a simple things. Letting God's law go down to the motives and intents of your heart through Jesus. It's true freedom. Verse 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Here, this is a promise, a commandment that's going far beyond just the breaking of marriage vows, but it's deliverance from sensuality. It's deliverance from lust, from pornography, from anything in this world that is pulling our minds away from purity. We live in a world that's very impure, but it's possible like Jesus, like Enoch, to have a pure mind if your mind is stayed on Christ and he's giving you that new experience. Verse 15, thou shalt not steal. Really, this is talking about not taking what's not ours. But the thing is, if you trust God, he'll provide for your needs. If you are tempted to take what's not yours, I remember before I was really conscientious about this, I used to download music that wasn't legal. And I remembered how I felt about it. I was like, you know, I'm stealing their copyright. And I would find myself listening less and less to that music because I felt like this isn't right. And then I finally delete it and I'd ask God to forgive me. But I'm just giving that as an example. You know, God's helped me to totally do away with that. But I use it as an example that your conscience will not set right when you do something wrong. Are you thankful for a conscience? Ask God to keep your conscience sensitive to right and wrong. Because we can harden or numb or sear our conscience by continuing to do the wrong thing and saying, oh, it's not a big deal. That's not a place I want to be when Jesus is about to come. I want to have a conscience that's sensitive to what the Holy Spirit says and to do it the moment he says it. Verse 16, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And I was thinking about this. This goes way beyond just outright lying. This means freedom from gossip. This means freedom from fault finding. This means freedom from evil speaking. Because according to Matthew 18, if there's an issue, you need to go straight to the person. You don't need to make it a subject of conversation. And you think about it, we're tempted to do this because it's normal. It's so common. I mean, but God says, I'm not calling you to live a common life. I'm calling you to live a supernatural life. And so we can ask God to just guard our mouths. If it's not helpful, not true, it's not edifying, I could probably just leave it unsaid and keep praying for the person until I have opportunity to talk to them. And it may not even be what I thought it was. So freedom, true freedom from bearing false witness and tarnishing people's reputation. And it's really a freedom experience in Christ. And then verse 17, you could say in many ways this is like a capstone. Because it's one thing to outwardly conform. God is not calling for outward conformity. 
he's calling for inner transformation. And so he's given us the 10th commandment, verse 17, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. In promising us freedom from covetousness, Jesus is essentially saying, I will deliver your heart from even desiring what you shouldn't have. That's power. That's grace. Because we can't naturally change our hearts. Can you change your own desires? God can. If you surrender your will to Christ, he'll say, I can give you new desires. Desires that are in harmony with what is true and right and that set you free. Now you would expect that as the Israelites hear these exceedingly high spiritual you know, declarations of God's character and these principles of his government, that they would fall on their face and say, we need a savior, we can't do this. But how do they respond? Exodus 24, verse 7. And I think many times we're tempted to do this, and if we understand the subtle temptation here, it'll help us to continue to walk in freedom rather than a burdensome bondage of making attempts and promises and failures and discouragements and despondency. Exodus 24, 7. And he took the book of the law and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. Now, we realize that our own promises are like ropes of sand. Have you ever built a sandcastle? I used to like to do that when I would go to the beach when I was younger. But all it takes is one wave, it's gone. A rope of sand is not going to hold up under anything. And so we can promise that we're going to be good. Maybe you've done something wrong. And this is where there's a subtle sense of self that can get in here. You've been bad. You did something wrong. You stay away from Jesus because you feel really sinful. You start feeling better. You come to him, you ask him to forgive you, and you say, I'll be good this time, Lord. He's not asking for that. He's asking that you turn your life case over to him. You surrender your will to Jesus, and you say, I can't do this without you, Lord. Forgive me for trying on my own. Help me to depend on you. And then he'll give you the strength to do it. And you're like, I failed every time I come to that situation. And we should all know our little alert moments. And I, I call them alert moments. Maybe it's when you're sitting down, the alert moment is you're so tempted to do something that too much or the wrong thing. Maybe it's alert moment is with the remote. You're tempted to go to a channel you shouldn't go. You should pray to Jesus and say, Lord, help me to know my areas where I really need to be watching and praying rather than just kind of, well, it's, I'll just take a little vacation from Jesus. Vacations from Jesus spell disaster. They do. And the thing is, the guilt that comes in, and I want to just encourage you, if you do something wrong, and the devil comes right on your case, says, you've done it again, God doesn't love you, stay away from him until you feel better. Well, you can't make yourself better, so the best thing to do is if you know the character of God, the next instant, go back to Jesus, pray and ask him to forgive you, and say, Lord, I realize I can't do this without you. Help me to depend on you. This is where we actually heal in our character building. When I say heal, because... We've been wounded to think that this is kind of trivial or that doesn't really matter there. But when our conscience has no rest, I have to tell you, that's not freedom. True freedom is living in obedience to God and enjoying the experience, not like kicking and screaming like Jonah. Do I have to? It's willingly saying, I'm all in, Lord, whatever you want. And so the Israelites, they make this promise. But how does that go? Go to Exodus 32. Exodus 32 and starting in verse 1. We notice that while they intended to be obedient and they professed to serve God, and I praise God, he's asking for much more than a profession. He's asking for a heart-surrendered transformation that he brings about in us as we cooperate with his grace. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1. 
And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. These be thy gods? This is a golden calf. This is not their god. The idolatry, as they're dancing around this golden calf and proclaiming that this is the god that brought them out of Egypt, we see it for what it is, right? Like, this is clearly not the true God. But the Apostle Paul, writing to us in the last times, would have us to realize that it's the same way. There's idolatry all around us, maybe even in the church, and God wants us to see it for what it is and not fall for the counterfeit. Because they had become so accustomed to the idea of a calf being a semblance of God in Egypt that it would just seem like, well, this is pretty close to what God asks, and this will pass. I've been reading through the 1888 materials by Ellen White that are basically chronicles of the experiences after the 1888 conference in Minneapolis. And on page 494, paragraph 3, it says, That which we have most to fear is nominal Christianity. Is that your greatest fear? I think we're like, we're afraid of the devil. We're afraid of the seven last plagues. God says, we need to most fear nominal Christianity. What is nominal Christianity? It's in name only. It's denying its power. And so if you go to 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1, we can look at a description of nominal Christianity, and it fits the bill. It fits where we're at. And I'd say it fits where we are in American society and our need to experience the declaration of dependence on Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. Now, if it said the next phrase, and these are the people you find in prison, you'd be like, oh, yeah, definitely, that's where it is. But notice verse 5. It says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Or we could put it this way, calling yourselves Christian and still living in sin. That is nominal Christianity, and that is essentially what is going to catapult this nation to its prophetic status of Revelation 13, of enforcing a law that goes right in the face of the fourth commandment, the true Sabbath, because nominal Christianity Without the power of the Holy Spirit, you know what it needs? It needs the power of the state. The reality is we will either accept Jesus' power to transform our characters, or we're going to look for some other power outside of ourselves. We need Jesus to transform us. We don't want a form of godliness. I want true godliness. How about you? I want true character that is not shaped from without and put on, but it's radiating from within when Jesus lives in us by faith. And truly, when we start to feel how massive the mission is that we've been entrusted with as a people and the times in which we live, the solemnity of the hour, may it cause us to fall on our knees to get the igniting fuel, and that's the power of Calvary's cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning verse 19, 
we see the incredible supernatural experience of Christ being willing to taste our experience so we could taste his. He would be willing to become sin, and that happened most strikingly when he was in Gethsemane, agonizing over the reality that he would become sin for us. It would break his heart because sin is the transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. And he felt the brokenness of that character of God in his own heart when he hung on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 19. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is a great mystery, the mystery of godliness. Paul the Apostle would describe it in Colossians 1.27 as Christ in you, the hope of glory. But Revelation picks up this in Revelation 10.7. And in the time in which we live, this mystery is to be finished. Let's go there to Revelation 10, verse 7. The first mystery is how that God, the infinite God, could become man and bear our sin and die as our sacrifice and atone for all of our sins and give us the gift of eternal life to all who freely receive it, opening their hearts to that reality. In Revelation 10, verse 7, God wants the result of this to finally catapult this world to see his character in a way that's not seen it fully before. Revelation 10, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when you shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. That mystery is the character of Christ being revealed in you and me. It's not just all the fruits of the Spirit, not one missing. It's not just living the law of God. It's allowing that to fully mature. Some of you probably plant gardens, and you know that if you plant a seed, you're waiting for the maturity of when you see that seed in that planted harvest. Some it looks just like it. If you plant corn, you're waiting for the time when the corn actually looks like and it's just like the seed that you planted. When Jesus was planted in the grave, that was a promise of a harvest that he would harvest his character in his people. He wants us to be a part of that experience. In the book Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, paragraph 3, it says, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Jesus is coming very soon, and he wants you and me to be a part of that great harvest. Now, some of you, last couple of days, probably went to see some fireworks. I know growing up, my family, my dad, my mom, my sister and I, we would go to uh, the University of California, Stanislaus State, and we would actually watch a very grandiose fireworks display. You know, they'd start off, and, you know, of course, it had to get dark before they'd start. They'd be playing music. Fireworks would go boom, boom, you know, it'd come off, and here's one. But finally, as things got right towards the end, it was like they had whatever was left, and they just put all the fireworks off, and it just got so loud, and, like, the whole sky lit up like daylight. And as I was thinking about that, I'm going, you know what? That's what God's going to do in the last days. We're the grand finale. God said, I'm going to take the weakest of the weak, and so it'll be clear that it's not them. And I'm going to take the most broken and sinful. And I'm going to reveal my character through them. And the whole universe is going to see the character of God. Now, we could say, Abraham, there's a nice firework. Isaac, Jacob. You read Hebrews 11. Wow, it's like a fireworks display of all these people walking by faith. But if you go to Hebrews 11, verses 39 to 40, we see an intimation of the fact that you and I are invited to be part of God's grand finale. That it's 
to declare freedom in such a way that it's so fully matured in a way that the universe will say, we won't even touch sin anymore. No more risk. It's done. It is done. Hebrews 11, verse 39 and 40. And this is looking back on all these men and women of faith who walked by the word of God, knowing his voice. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. You know, I'll be honest with you though. Sometimes I think that we act like our lives are the leftover sparklers the day after 4th of July. We're like, we're just the weakest ragtag bunch here. You know, we're barely making it into heaven. God's like, "Uh uh-uh, not sparklers, grand finale. And I say that because God does not want you to go out in this great conflict of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all the powers of evil arrayed against us and have this weak, you know, imp-like, Witness, no, he paid so much for us. The dynamite that ignites this fireworks display is Calvary's cross. So if you want to know how to light up the world for the character of God, go and spend a thoughtful hour at the feet of Jesus, especially on the closing scenes of his life. And you can't help but shine. It will shine out of your countenance. You're going to want to tell someone that what Jesus has done for you. And when that character is perfectly reproduced, it's over. And that's what happens. Everyone's like, You can't do much more than that. And God's like, exactly. It is done. And so truly, Jesus is saying, don't act like a leftover sparkler. Be one of my great fireworks that is part of the final display of my character. And all it takes is a willing heart. And if you're not willing, you can ask God to make you willing because he's willing to meet you right where you're at. And so I don't know about you, but are you willing to let Jesus make you one of his final fireworks, revealing his light, his character, to reveal the true freedom of obedience to his law of liberty by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If so, I invite you to stand with me as a witness that you surrender your will to Christ. This is freedom. This is the way we celebrate 4th of July in this church. Praise God. And as the Holy Spirit calls to your heart today, there may be some of you here that have not yet made a decision for either baptism or rebaptism. And if the Holy Spirit is calling to your heart, if that's your desire, I didn't just invite you to raise your hand. Amen. Anyone else? Praise the Lord. Well, let's kneel for prayer and ask God to seal these spiritual decisions that through prayer we would truly walk out and live out this freedom that he promises. Father in heaven, we are weak. We know that. We know that there's nothing in a firework to make it ignite except the fire. And so, Lord, we need the fire of the Holy Spirit. We pray for the baptism of your Holy Spirit to come upon us, to do your will, to speak the truth as is in Jesus to be ignited by your character and to go forth into this dark world. It's getting darker every day. But Lord, we thank you that usually they wait until it's really dark to do the fireworks display. And that's exactly what you've chosen to do. So Lord, we're willing to be all in for you. Take our hearts, our minds, our wills. Recreate us into your image and prepare us for your very soon coming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Pastor Sean Grisendine, pastor of the Houghton Seventh-day Adventist Church and assistant pastor of the Bessemer and Greenland Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you've enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath? I'm sure he'd be glad to meet you.